0: Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer.
1: And I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And we thank you for joining us on this fine Monday after a very windy weekend, Natalie. Very
0: windy indeed.
1: Now joining us in the studio, it's Alan Smith. Not that one, the other one. And down the line from his secret haunt in Mortlake where he can (laughs) spy his near neighbor, who no doubt lives in a much posher place, uh, Matthew Syed, it's Matt Dickinson. Later on we'll be discussing what can be done to protect players after fans invade the pitch in England as well as Scotland.
0: But we start at the Emirates where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer suffered his first domestic defeat as the Manchester United manager. Arsenal running out 2-0 winners on Sunday to leapfrog United into fourth in the table. And Matt, United are the last top six side that Arsenal have to face this season. So how do you rate their chances of finishing in the top four?
2: Uh, but well, they're trying to predict um, any of this is fraught, and, and I guess trying to predict Arsenal's uh, part of it is is pretty fraught. It's, you know, they they were full of resolve yesterday. They executed a plan pretty well, um, but you know, even in in recent days, we've seen a few lurches in form. So you know, that I, I the sort of Arsenal Stadium was was bouncing by the end, and understandably, and there's no doubt. That um, Emory is, is is improving them, I and mean, they're 12 points better off than this time last year. Their home record generally is is looking very very sturdy. Um, there are things, you know, good things happening there. But um, I think, it's a brave man, who says, "Yep, yeah, they're fourth now, and they're they're definitely going to stick there." Because, um, as I say, we've 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 seen a few fluctuations, but they they do have an easier run in, you know, certainly by the looks of it, than United. And uh, as the fans were singing, they're, they're, they're now breathing right down Tottenham's throat, only one point behind. So it was pretty bouncing, even in even in filthy conditions
1: yesterday. But Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said that United played better and didn't deserve to lose. Is he mad or is he correct?
2: I thought they played. Um, they didn't play badly. I mean, uh, there was an co- obvious come down from. I was uh, had the the privilege of being in uh, the part of the prance, and and that was just one of those mad nights. But I mean, yeah that they were all over the place for 20 minutes in, in that match you know PSG should have knocked them out of sight but they, they sort of clung on um and and pulled off a extraordinary that extraordinary comeback yesterday he had to change formation they set up 4-4-2 and it just it, it looked wrong um pretty early and within half an hour it switched to, to match up with Arsenal's system and that was a A necessary change, certainly got Pogba into a a better position, closed down some of the Arsenal threat down the the width. Um, So, you know, Solskjaer, I guess we saw that he's still learning a bit on the job, but at least he was decisive. Um, And United had some decent chances on another day. Lukaku scores a couple.
0: Focusing on Arsenal once again, as Matt pointed out, they are just now a point behind Tottenham after their defeat at Southampton this weekend. It's fair to say that finishing above their North London rivals seemed pretty unlikely for Arsenal for most of the season, Alan.
3: Um, Yeah, I think since mid-February, there's been a nine-point swing. Much of that, of course, down to Spurs kind of falling apart. They've lost three of the past four and drawn one of the other games. I was actually at Southampton on Saturday and I thought, you know, Spurs looked really, really good in the first half. And then... Perhaps because Pochettino was in the directors' box rather than on the touchline, they failed to react to Southampton making two substitutions, changing formation, and completely fell apart in the latter stages of that game. Which Arsenal closing the gap, they deserve plenty of credit for that. They've played quite well, particularly at home, have been incredibly consistent. But much of this is down to sort of Spurs, you know, taking this almighty dip in form.
0: What about uh, David De Gea's performance then yesterday? Granite Xhaka, who's been often maligned, it has to be said, got that opening goal that swerved past the United goalkeeper. Was he at fault, Gab?
1: It's weird. It's, it's like because De Gea's held in such high regard, right? The number of people who come out and just say, well, unquestionably, he's the best goalkeeper in the world. It's just staggering to me. You know, people have never met Mr. Oblak or Mr. Neuer. But anyway, I heard explanations from ranging from the wind, I know it was windy, but you're inside a stadium. you know what I mean? Like, And he hit the shot so hard that the swerve clearly came from the shot, not from the wind. And he did not look good at all. And I, I think he just reacted late and, and stepped in the wrong direction. And
3: his reaction
1: afterwards, he sort of made this gesture with his hands to suggest there was something wrong with the ball. Yeah, I, that, look.
3: which is, I thought was a bit ridiculous.
1: I mean, the thing about the hair is. And I don't know if it's a trend or it's just because they don't, you know, it doesn't make many mistakes. But in the same way that Neuer, most people would say, is one of the best goalkeepers in the world. But when he does make mistakes, he looks extremely silly. It's the same thing with De Gea. I mean, think back to, think back to the World Cup. You want to rewrite history here, but if you were Spanish, you might even conclude that, you know, were it not for those De Gea errors, maybe everything would have been different in that World Cup. Maybe not. So, yeah, like I mean, on balance... He's a tremendous goalkeeper, and it's worth having him. But yeah, I think little question that he was at fault. Just as a wider point, do you think these elite goalkeepers, the sort of top
3: five in the world, are the errors they make are far more silly than say your average goalkeeper? I kind of remember like is Allison's. That what just said? Yeah, no, no but it, why? Can I just why, not why, say exactly? Yeah, that? yeah, but but why do you think that is? Like I remember Allison's dummy against Leicester when he sort
1: of played himself into trouble earlier in the season. I mean, it, it is a good question. I think Allison's a bit different because sometimes Allison, you know, he tries to play with a ball or whatever. Mm-hmm. De Gea's mistakes are generally technical mistakes yeah. that you don't expect. And Noyers, I think, even though he likes to play with the ball too yeah. as well. People have suggested that their teams are so good that they face so few shots that you know their concentration wanders yeah. or whatever. I find that a little bit hard to believe because these are professional athletes at the very top one top goalkeeper who's actually the opposite in the sense that I don't remember him making a stupid mistake is is all black I'm not saying he's better than Neuer and De Gea and those guys but he is somebody who he never makes those you know sometimes he just doesn't get to the ball but he very rarely makes makes that type of uh, that type of mistake
0: just lastly what about the penalty the foul of on Lacazette from Fred. Was that a penalty, Alan?
1: Well, Peter Walton, this morning's
3: paper says there's no debate, it was a definite penalty. Um, I mean, the contact was absolutely minimal. I think the argument, if you're the referee, is that when you're moving a pace like that, it only takes a slight nudge to to fall over. But you kind of think that, you know, the manner, the manner in which he went down was just, you know, just kind of embarrassing, but at the same time, successful because he won the penalty. And I think, you know, we have this debate quite a lot about whether players should go down on the minimal contact because it's gaining an advantage. And, you know, the contact was, was clearly there, and he's he sort of bought it, hasn't he? So, you know, it, it, I think it's a penalty. It's harsh because the contact was not minimal, but it, under the rules
1: it is. I'm curious, since we'll have to deal with this stuff next year. And we have Mr. VAR here uh, down the phone from Mortlake. If
2: well, you have been the uh, v- No, I, I did wonder. I mean, you, you do- know, because you say, we're going to have the system. And I did, I, I, I mean... <laughs> this is a classic where I, yeah, I thought it was wrong. Now, is it is it wrong, sufficiently wrong to overrule? I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that... Not
1: just, overrule because we need to be precise in our language here. The VAR does not overrule okay, the not referee. That, yeah, to, to say, Had you, you been the VAR operator, would yeah, you have asked the referee to take another look at it? I think, I, I didn't think
2: it was a penalty. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's the, the, the fact is that if, if, if Lacazette doesn't get it, I, I don't really see that he can in any way feel, you know... Um, I, I just didn't see enough enough contact to feel it was. I, you know, I just thought it was a wrong decision. But this is the subjective world. I mean, I think, you know, if we go back on VAR, this is where massive part of the education process, which is going to take a long time, but just people have to accept that it will write, you know, the, the thing it will do is make sure we don't have any of the absolute blunders, but there will be all sorts of incidents that fall into grey areas whether it's handball or a penalty incident like this where it's a grey area you're never going to get 10 people to agree on the same thing
0: this season with your subscription to the times and the sunday times you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the premier league it's just eight pounds for an eight-week trial It is as you were in the title race, as Manchester City and Liverpool were both victorious. The champions maintained their one-point lead at the top of the Premier League. There was an early scare and a late scare for Liverpool, who beat Burnley 4-2 at Anfield. Now, Gab, we've spoken about the front three, perhaps struggling, but two goals apiece for Firmino and for Mane. Did they look more fluid going forward?
1: They did. When you mentioned the early scare, I have to say, I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter. It's going to be forgotten. It's a footnote of history. Yeah. But how on God's green earth was that not a foul on Allison? Like, what, what, what? I mean, I kind of feel that for all the people who bitch about VAR, this could have changed the history of the season, right? Because if the goal stands and Liverpool don't come back, Burnley end up winning. In what sort of universe, other than perhaps a maximum security prison, is that not a foul on Allison? Am I wrong here, Alan? No. No, no. Tarkovsky clearly puts two hands on his
3: shoulders, <laughs> just, like the climb above him, forcing him downwards.
0: But, I mean, but actually, like, if you see what the referee Andre Mariner is doing,
1: you're going to stick up for Tarkovsky because he's no, a no, no, b-
0: no, not at all. Friendly, it's a clear but, foul. It was an okay. obvious I mean, I, no, he's a splitter, so I don't oh, stick up for okay, right him. Yeah. <laughs> no, but if you look, it looks as though Andre Mariner is watching the flight of the ball rather than what's so going, going on. The referee
1: ball court. watching. It
0: looks like it. If you look well, back,
1: you know, if only he had assistance I and mean, maybe <laughs> no. even a fourth official who would actually look looking at what happens on the pitch.
3: Yeah, although the assistant on that would have been behind Tarkowski so he may not have seen from that angle his sort of climbing above. He wouldn't have, like if if has jumped know, above Allison, he wouldn't
1: have seen his hands for instance if he was directly mm-hmm. behind him. he been playing football excuse, for a long time decision. and yeah. 99% of the time the refereeing the refereeing crew manages to pay attention to what happens, you know. But you're right. Well, <laughs> why is he looking at the flight of the ball?
0: It just looks like he is, and I, mean, I could be corrected on that, but it certainly looks as though he's not watching what's going on in the goal now.
1: But to your question, yeah, they, they certainly looked a lot better. I don't think Firmino's back to where he was, but it's certainly an encouraging performance. Mane, I think I saw from open play, I think he's what the second-most goals in the Premier League this season. That's obviously a big bonus, and, and it's interesting with Liverpool because... We've seen this happen before in the midweek game against Watford. You know, they have a couple of bad performances and you think they're going to disintegrate and then they come back with a, with a strong performance. As long as you're hitting those at the right time, then, then you're OK. But I find this midweek game coming up so interesting.
0: Yes, so Liverpool, of course, travel to Bayern Munich on Wednesday in the Champions League. It is goalless from that uh, first leg. Matt, is there any argument to say they're better off being knocked out and focusing on the title race?
2: Uh, there is an argument I, I, I don't find it you know, totally convincing I, I, I think I tend to sort of think that you know winning games is the best way to try and keep winning games um, you know trying to keep form trying to keep momentum whether it's from you know from one competition to another clearly there is an argument about well you know if you've just sort of got there's a limit to resources and, 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 and energy and, um, and, and it'll allow them to focus but then you know that in itself does not suddenly make me tip the balance and think, oh well, yeah, Liverpool are going to win the league now because because they've got one less competition to to think about. Um, I, I I think that's too that's too simplistic. So I I find myself just thinking I'm more interested in 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 how they're playing and whether they're playing well enough and whether they're clicking and whether they're doing the things that they need to do and whether they look like they are, you know coping undoubtedly with, with expectations because it's um, Liverpool's first title in a very long time will be a very, very big deal. And that, and they have got the the problem that they're up against the City side who, you know, are exceptional by any standards. That's a fact. They're, they're ahead not just by a point, but with the goal difference as well. Um, so the idea that they're yeah, they, they get knocked out of the Champions League, and and suddenly that sort of shifts the odds significantly. I, I, I'd I'd say I, I, I think that's um, simplistic.
1: There's a really good column on uh, on Bayern in uh, in, in today's um, in today's game. Incidentally, Bayern, of course, are, are also. Who
0: wrote that gap?
1: Why, why I did. <laughs> no, you know, Bayern are also embroiled in a in their own uh, title race is Actually, even tighter than it is uh, in the Premier League this season. It's funny because Liverpool are still, with bookies, they are still slight favourites. I kind of feel the momentum is the other way. I I feel like it it is it is with Bayern, even though this Bayern side aren't particularly good. Um, but that's sad. If Liverpool can get a goal. And hang on, they also have the away goals rule in their favour.
0: Well, as for City, uh, they were beneficiaries of a strange refereeing decision, breaking the deadlock yeah, in that's their... way to put it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Breaking the deadlock in their 3-1 win over Watford through a Raheem Sterling goal that originally was ruled out for offside before Paul Tierney overruled his assistant. Alan, what happened in this one?
3: <laughs> um, well, basically, Aguero plays ball forward... I think it's Daryl Yanmat, comes off his shin. Sterling's clearly offside. Assistant referee raises his flag to give offside. Paul Tierney runs across. They kind of have a conflab about it and decides to give the goal. Tierney's view apparently is that he didn't feel Sterling was active as the ball kind of came off Yanmat's uh, shin. But clearly he's Yanmat's fully aware that Sterling's there. Otherwise you Probably would have let the ball kind of run across him and out for a goal kick or a throw-in, and you know he's he's obviously impacting play um, and shouldn't have stood. It's quite funny. I know Guardiola was asked afterwards if you know this kind of slice of luck is something that helps you, and he took great offence to it because he made the point that you know we were so much a better team and starting with on and scored two more goals afterwards. But you know it was the first goal, scoreless at the time, um, and they have got lucky. I think Dicko- they, they would have still gone on to probably would have gone on to win the game regardless, but you know it is a big slice of luck.
1: Digo, just be clear: VAR wouldn't have changed this. Paul Tierney saw what he saw; he simply interpreted matters in his own way, right?
2: Yes, good. You, you, you've been reading the uh, protocol over clearly on as a sort of part of your your leisure time.
1: Well, no, like, there's two things that bug me. One is obviously the whole mystery with VAR. The other one is people saying like, "Oh." You know the handball and the offside rule. It's all gone mad. It hasn't all gone mad. The rules are there. They're actually pretty clear. And just because sometimes things don't seem right to you, but if the rules are so clear, why is a referee making because he misinterpreted this? Because he made a mistake. Because he's Paul Tierney. Because you know, I'm sorry. Name a Premier League referee. I bet you you would go through twenty names before you come up with Paul Tierney, right? Yeah. There's a reason this this guy is this guy's the Huddersfield of. Premier League referees. Maybe he'll get better one day. Presumably, that nice Mike Riley will sit him down and, you know, have his assessor's report and they assess him and they'll be like, Paul, you know. Two weeks in the championship? (laughs) No, you don't punish the guy, but you say, you know what? This isn't good. This is this is the equivalent of a uh, How is that fantasy?
0: a punishment being put in the championship? Sorry, League one, League one, how one. disgraceful.
1: See, look, he's the one who's against the law of the football. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it if <laughs> his referee refereeing
2: QPR V Stoke on Saturday, then that was, that was it was a punishment watching it, never mind. <laughs> <referring> it. <laughs> I
0: can imagine. Um as it was then, that first goal did stand and Sterling went on to get that hat trick. Sterling's now scored or assisted twenty nine goals this season. Matt, how valuable has he become to Manchester City?
2: Uh, extremely, I, you know, I think it's it always sort of feel like mean, he's talking about, you know, an uh, English player development as well. It's sort of hard to remove the national um, side of it. And I, I was just sort of thinking back to, you know, not that long ago that Sterling was the sort of go-to um, scapegoat, everyone on this case. And, and you know, I, I know that's a huge uh, whole different argument that he has raised about about you know well race um and and what he thinks is is um and and media portrayal but um yeah i think it's great in in so many ways i think it's great for him as, as, as as a footballer that he's showing the best of himself i think that you know guardiola obviously needs to take a great deal of credit for you know sharpening his focus um and his finishing around around the box making him a a finisher, as we saw um, in this game. Um, you know, even those sort of little dinks. How many times we used to see him sort of tighten up around the penalty box. Um, so there's been huge, yeah, huge change there. And he's, yeah, he's he's fulfilling his potential. What more can you ask from the player?
0: Well, the weekend's action was sadly littered by incidents of fans running onto the field of play. There were disgraceful scenes at St Andrews as Aston Villa's Jack Grealish was struck by a pitch invader from behind during the derby with Birmingham in the Championship. Chris Smalling was shoved by a spectator following Arsenal's second goal at the Emirates. And then on Friday night in Scotland, the Rangers' captain, James Tavernier, was confronted and pushed by a Hibs fan who kicked the ball away from him. Uh, Henry Winter, he writes in The Times about a potential stadium ban for birmingham matt what do you think needs to be done
2: well i think that's got to be one of the measures that's, that's that's looked at um i mean clearly you know any individual needs to have the uh full weight of the law um thrown at them i mean it's you know it's not enough i don't think uh, certainly you look at the greelish thing it's not enough just to talk about you know bans from football stadia there needs to be a you know a serious criminal punishment um sent down that that um, rightly acts as deterrent. Uh, you know, it will get whatever punishment goes down, will get publicity, and that needs to, say, be su- a sufficient deterrent to, uh, to, to to stop, well, you hope, um, to deter someone else. Um, but I think, you know, I was, we were talking about it last night actually, at, at, at Arsenal, Just, I mean, the key thing here is trying to, you know, limit the chance of it happening again, and I think you are going to get... I, I do think this was sufficiently scary that something pretty serious needs to be sent down, um, and and I think you know looking at stadium ban is not you know is not out of kilter um, with the seriousness of it.
1: You mean like shut down a stadium?
2: Um, yeah, well, I mean play you know games behind games. That, I, I mean I I do hate. We uh, you know, were at a game behind closed doors not so long ago. England uh, playing in Croatia, and it's it's a uh, it's a horrible atmosphere. I, um, I, I don't like that experience. It's you know you feel like it's you do feel like it's undermining you know the match that's being played. It makes it yeah it reduces the intensity for 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 everyone. But uh, uh, fines, I think we can forget. I mean fines generally never of, uh, of enough import to, to make a difference and and I think it's hard to pitch those right. So when I think things do escalate, I think that's that's why, you know, closing down a stadium just to, you hope, make people realize that it's taken seriously, to hope, make people realize that, you know, transgressions are going to have serious repercussions, Has has you know, has to be
1: considered. I think the difficulty with shutting down a stadium and one of the good things is, in England, you generally have a ton of data on on who buys tickets. It's almost Big Brother-ish, and there's CCTV everywhere, whatever. The, the danger in shutting down a stadium, per se, is that you're punishing an entire fan base. You're setting this up for situations where it could just be you know, one person who's mentally disturbed or, or whatever. You're basically going to Birmingham City, you need to preserve the peace and make sure that... Guys like him or who could potentially do what he did don't get on the pitch and wreak havoc. And I don't know. I kind of think when it is an individual, that is way too much of an ask. I have no problem with shutting down uh, a stadium if there's, if, there's, if there's crowd violence from a group of people in, in, in a crowd or, or if there's uh, racist or, or anti-Semitic chanting or, or whatever from a group of people in the fans. I mean, I, I think that's a very effective deterrent. I don't know that shutting down a stadium, when it's really something that you can't really go and control an individual. The whole reason you shut down stadiums is, or part of it, is to create sort of a a positive peer pressure, right? So people start chanting things they're not supposed to do. Other people in the crowd go and point them out to stewards or shush them or whatever because they don't want the stadium shut down. That's why...
2: I'm I'm seeing where you're going with this, and and to an extent I agree, but then we shouldn't forget either that there wasn't just one idiot. Well, it was one idiot who ran on, but then there were also hundreds, if not thousands, who were um, apparently, you know, clapping and um, saluting him for it. So while that does not make them, you know, that is a long way short of actually doing the act um, and is not a racist charm, it's still an awful lot of people um, supporting his idiocy. So
1: I you know. I think we have to have reasonable limits here. If if you think it's funny or worth applauding somebody running onto the pitch, then you may be an idiot. But there's no law against being an idiot. It doesn't affect other people. It's 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 not like it's not like racism or or, or violence. I I I don't know. I mean, I I think we also ran on with um.
3: Zed stitched onto the back of his coat, uh, reference to the infamous Zulu
1: fan group. The Zulu uh, army from the... From Birmingham. From well, all right. The, so presumably, or possibly this is somebody who's known to the club. They have a whole database of suspected hooligans or whatever. You know, use investigatory techniques to, to stop these people from coming in, to control them, name and shame him, mention him once he's found guilty, make sure that we all know who he is, his employers know who he is. That should be a big deterrent. But from there to shutting down stadiums, you're putting in the hands of one person. I think you're setting a, you're setting a dangerous precedent. If, if again, if it really is one person, if it's, if you don't have any evidence that it's some sort of coordinated thing or or whatever, where others were distracting the stewards, I don't know that that's the way to go. That that one person all of a sudden that we have this sort this of blanket policy, because there may be other situations which which are different. You know, there may be other. I remember when, and again, I'm not condoning it in any way, shape, or form. But when the West Ham fans ran onto the pitch last year at the London Stadium. They didn't do it to go attack anybody. They did it in protest at the ownership, which you can agree, you can disagree with, and I'm certainly not saying that they should have done it, but that was also a form of of disobedience which had which had a message, a message that that, that that's a bigger broader message. I I think we have to be I think we have to be very very careful with this.
0: What about The policing and stewarding of games, is that an issue going forward? Do we need to have more funding for for that to improve and, and, and also to counter pitch invaders?
3: Well, I know certain police forces, depending on the fixture, of course, quite often they won't have any officers in the ground because the idea is that... Taking this sort of hands-off approach means the possibility of disorder is less likely. Um, of course, fixtures like this, where you know there's a long history of trouble, I mean, it's not the first time that a Birmingham fan has run on and attempted to attack an Aston Villa player, Peter Engelman, several years ago. There was a similar sort of incident. Therefore, obviously, police presence inside the stadium is quite high. When it comes to stewarding, I saw a lot of people online Blaming the sort of lack of a reaction from stewards actually in all incidents over the weekend. And I just find that nuts because these are people who are paid pittance. They're there to do a certain job ensuring the safety of supporters is is their, their priority. But if you have somebody storming onto a pitch, clearly inebriated, possibly under the influence of other substances, and you're being paid, I don't know, 30 quid... for your your day's work. Should you put your body in harm's way for that? Um, I find it quite difficult to criticise the stewards for that. I know there was a separate issue with a steward being led away by police, having apparently kneed Jack Grealish in the back following the celebrations for his goal. Um, I was watching it and I kind of thought... He's try, He's clearly trying to get Grealish back onto the pitch over the advertising hoarding, but he's he's struggling. So he decides to sort of knee him in the back, mm-hmm. um, which is, is obviously seen, and then he's, he's sort of led away, uh, wasn't arrested for it. There was a suggestion that he had been initially, but he wasn't. Um, that is obviously ludicrous from that individual steward's point of view, but in general, they're doing a job that is quite difficult particularly this sort of high intensity games where there's a rivalry or a derby etc and they're
1: not exactly paid particularly well so you know they deserve a bit more i think i think you can maybe take a look at how games are stewarded and liaised with the police but i think the police in this country have generally done a pretty good job over the past 30 years yeah. compared to i know dicko you and i are old enough to remember what it was like in the 1980s so you tend to trust them. If they don't think it's right to have, you know, armed police and riot gear inside a stadium, then <laughs> I kind of tend to trust them. They're sort of the specialists here. Maybe what you can do is review the sort of people who become steward at football matches, the training they receive, and so on. I, I, always, think, I always thought it was weird that it doesn't happen so much, but sometimes when you, when you have pitch invaders and you see like sort of some overweight, puffing 50-year-old steward running after the guy – you know, maybe you have a group of four or five very fit stewards whose only job is to act as an extraction team so that somebody runs onto the pitch. Those guys sprint on and remove them. Um, and I think some clubs actually already have that. I don't know this necessarily the police that that should be the first people involved in that, but you know, there is a best practice to limit this. And figure out what it is and do it. But
3: to sort of introduce that would mean having more police sort of on the perimeter of the pitch. We do cops, what, the extraction of no, no, Yeah, well, no, if, if you were saying, you know, if police were possibly better equipped to do... To Let them decide. Situations. Yeah, yeah.
1: Let the police... Um, I mean, there's police inside the stadium anyway, even though they're not dressed like police. They're yeah. there to assess the situation to, to do the security. But at the issue is, at, at, like, quite a, the
3: majority of stadiums, you know, how many stewards are you going to need to block every avenue onto the pitch it's you know it's just well if you saw the the
0: arsenal invader he runs straight through two stewards who sort of half-heartedly try and stop him but don't but also if you watch what a lot of the stewards are doing during that game they're not even watching the fans they're watching the game aren't they supposed to be watching fans and i'm not just i don't want to just single out arsenal i think it's up and down the country stewards tend to now watch the game rather than watch what's going on in, in the crowd
1: except for the stewards at Brentford, who are very good and very professional of course
2: well, How right i mean then? i guess i mean hopefully that shows i mean it, that's partly because it is you know this is a relatively rare event but it's yeah i, I, I think we're equally i think we're all pretty shocked by the series i mean it's just yeah, a punch a punch from behind like that could have had far worse consequences that's the
1: fact and There is one other thing I want to add, and this is just on a slightly different pitch invasion just because it's happened a bunch of times. And it might just be him, Cristiano Ronaldo. But the number of times that, uh, this is on YouTube, that a pitch invader's come on and he goes up to Cristiano and cries and wants to take a selfie or stuff during games and he accommodates him. This message should be sent to players. If a guy comes onto the pitch, even if he wants to celebrate with you, if a guy runs onto the pitch, you completely ignore him. Just walk away from him. You know, if even if he wants to celebrate if he's your mate or whatever, no, he doesn't belong on the pitch gone.
0: Time now for our weekly predictions game where Gab and I pick five matches from the coming weekend and try to predict the score and, well, I have had a bit of a stinker this weekend. Indeed. Hmm, Neither of us predicted a Brighton win at Crystal Palace in the early kickoff on Saturday. We did both predict a Celtic win over Aberdeen but that was a goalless draw and we both predicted a draw in the Second City derby but Jack Grealish had the last laugh for Aston Villa with the winner against Birmingham.
1: And so it was left to me to rack up some points and because I'm a big believer in Warnock and Emery. By the way, can you imagine those two guys out for an evening in a restaurant <laughs> with one guy like sort of squeaking away and the other one acting on your Warnock like? <laughs> um, but I correctly predicted their victories for Cardiff and Arsenal. So I am the overall winner this week, just like last week and the week before. I
0: know. I've had a terrible run, haven't I? And my form is not good at all. I'm a bit like Tottenham right now on a bad run of form. Oh,
1: you're getting all flaky.
0: I am. But I still hold an advantage. 14-10 I lead this season. But yeah, you've done very well
1: recently, Gab. As I bask in the glory of my comeback, let's do some quick hits. Matthew Syed writes today about Spurs flakiness. I'm not so sure, but I thought they actually played really well against Southampton for a big chunk of the game, ultimately only losing to a James Ward-Prowse wonder goal. Alan, you were there. Am I wrong?
3: First half, completely dominated. Should have been 4-0 ahead. And I think Pochettino made a Really good point afterwards. He said, we played with a good type of arrogance in the first half and a bad type of arrogance in the second he half. You your piece. Where he essentially was saying that, you know, they were believing in their own hype, became complacent. The equalising goal, I have no idea how it was allowed to happen because Davinson Sanchez sort of stretched to attempt to clear it, struggled, fine. Um, Vertonghen. Jan, Jan Vertonghen. Don't know what he's doing. Danny Rose—he dummies to let the ball go across him. He either didn't realize, well, he obviously didn't realize that Jan Valerie was arriving at the back post. But I kind of asked Larice afterwards, who stopped in the mix zone, if you know, was there miscommunication? Did he receive a shout to say, you know, let the ball run across? Larice just said, "I don't know. I have to watch the tape again." Um, so obviously, from his point of view there wasn't a shout um, so what, I'm not quite sure what Rose was thinking it was just a terrible terrible error from that point completely lost her head Kyle Walker-Peters cynically brought down Armstrong who actually was Southampton substitute in the game completely changed when he came on and then ward Price scores this wonder goal so I think Southampton deserve it just because they showed some commitment mm-hmm. in the second half Spurs didn't
0: Chelsea wasted a great chance to move into the top four after being held at home by Wolves. In fact, they needed an injury time equaliser to rescue a point. Maurizio Sarri said it wasn't brilliant organisation by Wolves, but rather simply parking the bus and Chelsea not moving the ball quick enough. Matt, is he right?
2: Uh, I think that's pretty churlish of him, isn't it? I mean, you know, Wolves did, I think, only have 25% possession, but, you know, their records. I think I'm right in saying against the big six sides is the best from the division outside that group. They, you know, they've got points at uh, Chelsea, Arsenal, United, Spurs. By using uh, you know, a well-organized um, plan of, of deep defense and, and counter, you know, very fast counter-attack raids. It's, it's worked. It worked at Chelsea. They almost got the three points. So um, I, I think Sarri should be looking closer to home.
1: Natalie, one for you. Yes. Can you try and explain to me... What the heck just happened at West Brom this weekend? Everybody's so upset, Moro's gone.
0: Indeed, yes. Well, they drew with the bottom side Ipswich at the weekend. It means they're still fourth in the championship. Nine points, though, off automatic promotion. And as a result, Darren Moore, a Baggies legend, was sacked. It seems pretty harsh when you consider the ship he was trying to steady after relegation last season and that West Brom are faring the best of all the teams that came down from the Premier League. They are well and truly in the playoff mix, being at least seven points clear of the teams trying to get into the top six. However, the club deemed the draw with Ipswich the final straw with the board saying on the sacking, we have to place the club's best interests at the forefront of our thinking and we must do everything we can to try to deliver the promotion we have targeted. Now, speaking to West Brom fans, many aren't surprised by the decision, blaming Moore for his poor in-game management a lack of tactical awareness, the insistence on playing out from the back, also playing players in different and wrong positions, and the fact that they haven't won at home in 2019. Now, word seems to be that they want someone who can win the playoffs, and it looks as though they are turning their attention to the man who won the playoffs last season, Slavisa Jokanovic. Ooh. Mm, Indeed, we'll see.
1: But it just seems like a tall order that all of a sudden you drop this guy in there and... And he's going to do much better. Home form has been rubbish, I yeah. yeah.
0: But as I say, a lot of West Brom fans not surprised and are quite pleased that the club have made this change. Newcastle make it five straight home victories as they come from behind to be Everton 3-2 but Alan the referee Lee Mason didn't send off Jordan Pickford after he rugby tackled Solomon Rondon and then the assistant failed to notice numerous Newcastle players were offside for Iosi Perez's winner. What do you make of both incidents?
3: Um, he didn't even give me a yellow card did he? Yeah. Um, I noticed afterwards Rafa Benitez saying that Pickford shouldn't have been sent off and I think that was down to Newcastle winning the game. And, you know, Silva was the one who ended up being, Mark Silva ended up being irate with the referee because the decision for the third goal was absolute nonsense because there are five Newcastle players offside. Some were making the argument that because it was a second phase of play in the second phase Perez was back onside, having initially started from an offside position. But completely ignore that. When Rondon receives the ball, he's offside. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just I think, you know, th- there have been so many bad
1: decisions this weekend. I think that may be the worst one. The U.S. women's national side is suing the U.S. Soccer Federation, claiming they are entitled to equal pay with a men's team. Dicko, this is a familiar issue. It gets debated at Wimbledon every year. Do they have a case?
2: Um, I think on a national um, team level, it's, it's fascinating, and, and I, I think you know I'm sure they have a case. It'd be inter- you know would be fascinating to follow this one through. I, I mean, I think if you're playing for a national team, I mean, there's arguments about how much that should be about what you are paid, um, full stop. But I think there's there's clearly an onus on national federations, whether it's our own DSA FA as well, to be seen to be actively promoting the, the women's game and equal pay. Yeah, it should definitely be part of that consideration. And I think it is different, obviously, at the club level. If you have got Manchester United men, you know, as part of a multi-billion pound TV deal and the women's team not, then that is a different argument. But yeah, at national representative uh, level, there's a symbolism about this that I think is worth... You know I, I can see why the case has been launched, and i'll be
1: fascinated by the result it's a very complex issue, and I think one thing to consider that we should shouldn't lose sight of is that the football associations aren't for profits; their job is literally to promote the game in the country, and I think the absolute priority should be providing equal access to the game to men and women who want to play The next step down though is you have to look at what these people actually bring in, what the two teams and how they help promote the game in the country. Um, And then you also look at how much money they generate. And in the US, it is an unusual situation in that the women's team is so much better and so much more effective uh, than the men's team. And they also draw, maybe not as big overall, but they also draw big crowds and, and get substantial ratings.
0: Okay, Gab, one for you lastly then. You've mentioned Bayern already. With their big game coming up this week, they are top of the Bundesliga, on course for the treble as well. But I thought they were supposed to be poor this year. What's happened?
1: Well, what's what's happened, and th- th- this is like the shifting of the Overton window, Like, like we, this is like the new normal, we take this as given, is the imbalance of power is so great in the Bundesliga and in many other leagues, sometimes it's just one team, sometimes it's two teams, sometimes it's six teams, but it's still there, that... You can make bad choices, be hit hard by injuries, and you're still you're still in the mix just because your bad is much better than most other people's outstanding. And you know, Bayern this season with with Carin missing basically much of the season, Aryan Robin injured since since November. Uh, they only added Leon Goretzka over uh, over the summer. Issues with with a bunch of their veterans: Möller, uh Holmes, and Boateng, who haven't been good for a while, and now drop for the national team, and still, they press on and they beat Wolfsburg at the weekend, six nil, and they're they're ahead of uh, Borussia Dortmund now in goal difference. And it seems absolutely mad, but if they get by, if, I mean, right now they're third favourites to win the Champions League, and that's before. And if they get by Liverpool, then the odds will narrow even further. They're in the German Cup quarter final. You know, I, I'm not saying anything original, but we need to think about how resources are allocated because when you have the kind of season they did, they really shouldn't be where they are.
0: That is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Matt Dickinson and Alan Smith.
1: Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Yes, you get that as well. To enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet, just £1 a week for an eight-week trial, search The Times subscription for more information.
0: We'll be back on Thursday when maybe, just maybe, four English teams might be through to the last eight of the Champions League.
3: The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.